Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to read starting at the beginning, so verse 1, and we're going to read our way down through verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. This is what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open your word to us, we pray. Open our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts, everything that we are to your sovereign word for us. That is what we need this morning and that is what we ask. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Now, we spent time this last week, just last week, reading through this exact text, and this is what we said, that in the New Testament, you'll often see the leadership of the church described in a few ways. You'll see the word pastor, you'll see the words elders, you'll see the word overseer, and that those three terms are actually synonymous. They are speaking of the same position, that a pastor is an elder, an elder is an overseer, and all the way through similarly. That in other churches, for example, we usually use the word what? Pastor. Yet in the Presbyterian church, for example, they will call their pastors what? Elders, usually. What are we talking about? The same thing. There's a similar position between both churches that when they speak of elders, they are talking about pastor shepherds, men that have been set apart by the church and by the Lord to be the leaders of that body. That's, that's, that's true whether they're paid or whether they're unpaid. They are considered shepherds. That this is biblical. This is how the Bible talks about it. We even see in the scriptures that in the early church, multiple men would be set apart as elders of the same church, that the authority never rested in just one person exclusively because it was never meant to. You'll often see it in churches where there will be one pastor who has all the authority and all the leadership, and then when that pastor leaves, what happens? There's a lack of leadership. There's a vacuum of leadership. And there even can become a struggle for power by those who are, who are left. Yet when there's a multiplication or a, there are multiple pastors or elders in a church, even when one of them leaves, there are still shepherds who have been designated and set apart whose hearts are turned toward the leadership of Christ's church. Paul goes on to say that the saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or pastor or elder, he desires a noble task, that it's a good task. It's a valuable task when a person is desiring to be a shepherd of God's people, when he's desiring the growth and the joy of God's people, that's a noble task. But here's the deal. Just because someone desires it doesn't mean they are qualified for it. Let's say it another way. Just because it's a noble task does that not mean that there are also ignoble ways to pursue that task. Of course there are. And so God gives qualifications through Paul so that the church knows what kind of men are fit to lead. This is his list. This is what God says you should look for in pastor elders. And because it is his list, it's not open for conversation. It's not our task to modify it that we can neither lower the bar and set it lower by saying something like, well, that's not actually important. We don't need that. But on the other hand, we can't raise the bar saying, well, that just doesn't go far enough. We need more rules and more lists. No, the law that God gives is perfect. The qualifications that God sets for us are perfect. They don't need us editing them Thus, this list here is to be the type of men for which we should pray and seek. Look how he begins. An overseer must be above reproach. You know what reproach means? It simply means shame or disgrace. That nothing in their life would bring shame or disgrace upon them. Like the Bible talks about being blameless, without blame. Does that mean that we are looking for the perfect man, the perfect person? Well, in fact, we already have him. There's been one of those that has walked the face of the earth and he is the perfect shepherd. He is the overseer and this is his church. And so no, under shepherds, overseers are not meant to be perfect. Rather, their lives, their lips are to regularly point towards the perfect shepherd. That that's essentially what it means to be above reproach. That even in their lives, the perfect shepherd is being pointed to. That even when pastors fall or they, fell, they fall into sin, they do what they shouldn't and they have to come and repent. That even in that, they're pointing to the perfect shepherd who tells us that if we confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's interesting, he says they are to be above reproach and then he goes into a list of what this actually looks like. So let's see what he says. Where does he start? In the home. That an elder is to be the husband of one wife. Now, you may hear that and suddenly your wheels are turning and you're thinking, let's see what he says about divorce. Let's see what he says about remarriage. Let's see what he says about all this sort of stuff. But let's be honest. This actually isn't talking about that at all. What he's talking about here is how this man acts. 
He's not saying that the man has to be married, that he has to be the husband of one wife. He's not saying that at all. The Greek actually says this, that he's a man of one woman. He's a man of one woman, that his eyes and his heart and his mind should be toward one woman. That the point of this is how he conducts himself in his marriage if he's married. It's interesting that the call of the elder isn't just how he's seen in the community. It doesn't even start with how he's seen in the community. It's how he acts inside his home. Is his heart for his wife? Is his body for his wife? Is he devoted to her in every single way? It's like this, if the pastor's heart, or if the pastor doesn't have a heart for his own bride, if he doesn't pursue the good of his own bride, how will he ever have a heart for the bride of Christ? That's what he's saying, that there is to be an integrity among him, and the call of the pastor starts right there, not here, not out in the community, but in the home in his most primary relationship, the relationship with the wife. There was a well-known pastor who a few years ago decided he just didn't wanna be married anymore. He just didn't wanna be married anymore. And so he tells his wife, hey, I I don't wanna be married anymore. We're we're done with this. Well, the, the deacons of his church find out and they come to him and they are trying to talk him out of it. Look, you can't leave your wife. You can't do this. Let's set up counseling for you. And guess who showed up to the counseling? The wife would show up every time and the husband, the pastor of this church, this big church, never would come. And so the deacons kept coming to him and they said, look, if this is what you're going to do, you need to take a break from the pulpit. And this pastor looks at him, he says, I'm not doing that either. My ministry will not be derailed by this. I'm gonna keep doing what I've been doing. I'm gonna keep preaching on what I've been preaching. And so they would bring to him what he had preached and say, but you said this. Look what the Bible says. And so his response to that was to call his media director and say, I want you to scrub our website. Take off everything I've ever taught on marriage, on divorce, and remarriage. So his media director did it. And then she quit. And then the other pastors that worked with him quit. He wanted to just act like none of that was there, as if he could just do what he wanted and just leave his wife. And yet notice where Paul begins right here, that the call matters. And the call of the shepherd begins right there in the home. He also says a pastor should be sober-minded. Listen to this list. Sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard, and not a lover of money. Notice how that list goes together, that he is to be in control both of his mind and in his body, that he's not to be controlled by something else, not constantly driven back and forth by fear or by emotion, but also not constantly driven back and forth by external things like wine or money. 
You see what it's saying? He's not to be a lover of wine and he's not to be a lover of money, that neither of those things can either drive him or take hold of him. Rather, he's to be self-controlled, sober-minded, in charge of his faculties, in control of what drives him in his life, that he is to take not only his thoughts, but his body captive to the sovereignty of God. Says he's to be respectable, hospitable, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, that he isn't to enjoy the disagreements or to take pleasure in the arguments, that when people disagree with him, he doesn't get mad or violent. He doesn't seek to crush or simply win an argument. And if you're, if you're a married person, you, you know this, that, if you're, that, that you may win an argument, but you lose more than that. That you can win an argument, but you still lose. Why? Because when your only goal becomes winning, you lose. That we, we start doing this thing that we shouldn't do. We start saying things that we shouldn't do. Why? Because we just want to win. And what we'll do in that is we begin to set apart the honor and the dignity, just separate the person we're talking to from their honor, from their dignity, from the fact that they are made in Christ's image. And when we do that to them, we're doing it to ourselves. And he says, the overseer is not to be like this. He must not be argumentative. He must not just enjoy the, the battles, the disagreements. We're told he must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Notice what's happening. That in the shepherd, in the overseer, there is to be a control over himself, a control over his mind, sober-minded, a control over his, his faculties and his pursuits. He's not to be a lover of money, not to be a lover of wine. There's a control over himself, but there's to be a control over his children as well. Once again, this doesn't mean that he has to have children, but if he does, they must be submissive. Now, let me ask you this. What's the MO of the PK? You know what I'm asking. What is the reputation of the pastor kids? How many pastor's kids we have in here? I see one, two. Okay, it's pretty consistent. See, stereotypes exist for a reason. Pastor kids are thought to be what? Bad kids. You know that, right? All five of mine that are here just like... It's the reputation they have, and oftentimes, pastor kids what? They earn it. The stereotype is there for a reason. That pastors don't control their kids or can't control their kids. Paul mentions this specifically that if that's their reputation, then we have an issue. You remember the sons of Levi? They were known to be rebels or they were known to be dogs, if you prefer that. And their father, Levi the priest, didn't even try to control them. They didn't honor him as father and they didn't live long in the land in which the Lord had given them. Does this mean that, the, that his children are to be perfect, blameless? No, of course not. Rather, there's to be a respect from children to father. 
Because if the children of the pastor don't respect him, guess who's not gonna respect him either? The church. If the children of the pastor don't listen to him, guess who's not going to listen to them either? The church. If the children won't listen to them, if he can't manage his household well, how will he care for God's church? Now pay attention to what he just did. He just went from management to what? To care. What's the task of the overseer? It's to care for the church. That God's calling on the pastor isn't just to manage the church like their employees or they're a sod farm. No, it's to care for the church. That the heart of the pastor should be in the care for the church. Look, you guys are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That anyone in here who has trusted in Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection for the salvation that they need, that is my brother and sister in Christ. That is your brother and sister in Christ. And because this is true, my good is actually, is actually wrapped up in your good. And your good is actually wrapped up in mine that we're not to be at odds with one another because we're meant to be unified by the blood of Christ. That's why the call last week was there to even say, look, if you feel like you're at odds with me, come to me. Let's have that conversation because it's for our mutual good for us to be walking together in this, to be united in this journey because my task as the overseer is to care for the church, is to know you, to know what you're like, where you're strong, where you're weak, where you struggle, how I can specifically be praying. My call is to care for the church. Whose church? Is it my church? No. Is it your church? No. Notice what he says, it's God's church. So is this, is this God's building? Is that what he's talking about? No, this is. That this right here is what God is building. The word for church in the New Testament is the word ecclesia, ecclesia, however you'd like to say it. It's a combination of two words, two Greek words, ek, meaning out or out of, and klesia, which comes from kaleo, which means call or called. What is the church? It's the called out ones. Those who have been called out, never a building, never brick and mortar, the called out ones. Called out of what? Called out of sin, called out of death, called out of judgment, called out of hell, called out to follow Christ and live. That's the church of God. And, and God gives overseers who are called to care for those who have been called out. Paul says that overseers aren't to be recent converts, that you're not to take a new believer and make them a pastor. Why? He says, because they will be puffed up with conceit and they will fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's amazing. We just spent a whole month celebrating pride. And the Bible's pretty specific on what pride comes before. What does it come before? The fall. 
Pride comes before the fall. Pride comes before destruction. And Paul says, that's what happens when you put a new believer into the pulpit, into the pastorate. That what happens is he will get puffed up with conceit so often He will come to believe, look, I'm the one that's leading. I'm the one in authority. I'm the one to be followed, but make no mistake. He will be just like Satan in that, who saw his standing and saw his posts and said, I want more. I need to be more. His pride called him to seek that which was not his, the glory of God. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't put a new convert into the pulpit because when you do, they'll be puffed up and they'll follow the path of Satan. They'll fall just like him because of their pride. And the last qualification is this. They must be well thought of by outsiders. They must be well thought of by outsiders so that they don't fall into disgrace. Now, this one is interesting. The pastor of the church should be well thought of by outsiders. Does anybody else think that's weird? Isn't it Jesus who told us, if they hated me, they'll hate you? Isn't it Jesus who told us that, look, you're gonna be persecuted, you're gonna be hated by the world, that if you follow him, you will be persecuted? So how does he say that a pastor of a church must be well thought of by the outsiders. That doesn't make much sense. For whatever reason, you know, and I've told you this. Look, my, my Greek professor taught me that your Greek should be like your underwear. I think I've mentioned this to you before. It should be there for support, but you should never show it off. But there are times where it is super helpful. Because I read this and I was like, All right, what do you do with that? And so I I pulled out the older Bible and I started just reading through it like, okay, what's, what's happening here? And there's a pattern that takes place here. There's a Greek word that is used several times in this passage. It's the word kalos. And it can be translated good. It can be translated well. It can be translated noble. And so he uses it multiple times here. So if you, if you remember where he says, this is a noble task. He's actually saying this is a, a kalos task. It's a good task. He also says it, uh, take, uh, what, how does he say? How to manage his own household well, right? Kalos. And then we come to this place right here. He must be well thought of, and the word it gives again is, is kalos, well. Good, noble. But the next word it gives is actually the word martyria, from which we get our word martyr. He must be a good martyr. But the word martyr doesn't simply mean death, it actually means testimony or witness. So, what's he saying? Not so much that the world will like you or love you, but that you must have a good witness, that the pastor should have a good witness. What does that mean? That even if they don't like what you say, they know that when you say it, you mean it. 
That you're not like the hypocrite who does or says one thing but does another. That there's a consistency and an integrity in your life. That for the pastor, his lips and his life go together. He's got a good witness. Because he's not that guy who's just two-faced and saying one thing, doing another, telling you not to do something while he himself does it. No, he's a good witness. Now, I know what you're thinking. This list is amazing. It's not, is it? Some of you just look straight bored. This list is impressively unimpressive. There's not much to it. There's nothing on it that stands out. Why? Because the church isn't called to look for supermen. They're not called to look for super Christians, for the ones that walk on water or heal people. You're looking for men who are consistent in their lives, who say what they believe and live in a way that proves that what they believe is true. Very little in this list is actually something we wouldn't expect from every Christian. Everything I've just talked about, you should be doing too. The call should be on your life. That most everything an elder is called to, your, you, brother or sister, are called to also. But there's one thing we skipped over, and I want us to go back, because this one isn't true for all Christians. It's this. An elder or overseer, a pastor of the church must, must be able to teach. What does that mean? that he must be able to pick up the word of God and understand it and make it understandable. That when he reads it, God has given some the ability to just, just to see it and understand it and study through it and come to write faithful conclusions and then to take that word and give it to others in teaching. Paul writes a similar list to what we're going through right now in the book of Titus. And able to teach is kind of on there, but instead of him saying able to teach, he actually goes into definition of what it means to be able to teach. Here's what he says, Titus chapter one, verse nine. He says this, elders, pastors, overseers, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder must be able to teach sound doctrine. He must be able to give instruction in the word and he must be able to know when something is off. That it's not uncommon for pastors to spend time dealing with error or false teaching. In fact, that's what Paul has told Timothy. Watch out for false teaching. Watch out for false teaching. Be careful of it. And they're to watch out for it, not simply in interpretation, but in application as well. And by that, I mean that there are people in churches that will unknowingly not seek to stand against the word of God but their application has found its way to legalism, to selfishness, to things like that. And that the task of the pastor is to know when it's even slightly skewed. And as the shepherd, he's to bring back towards the truth. 
that there's an aspect of feeding and teaching, but there's an aspect of protection and and teaching, and this is the call of the pastor. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he's talking about the gifts that God has given to the church, to the called out ones. And he says this, that God gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is something that pastors are to teach regularly. Notice what he says. Whose task is the work of ministry? It's all of us. It's all of us. It's not just the pastors. It's not just the deacons. It's the saints. Everyone who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. It's every believer in Christ that your job, friends, is ministry just as much as mine is. That if you are in Christ, God has gifted you for ministry just as much as he has the pastors. And we need to stop with this division of secular and sacred as if my job matters and yours is just a job, that yours isn't important, as if my job is ministry but yours isn't. It's not true. As if my job has eternal value and yours just doesn't. It's not true. Your job matters. Your work matters. It's ministry. One thing I love watching, this this week I sat down with multiple families who are in the process of joining our church, and one question we always ask them is this, how has the Lord gifted you to serve in the church, and how do you see yourself using it? I think that's actually two questions, but... And in each of them, in each of those meetings, there was an excitement in the people that I asked the question to. There was an excitement, not simply to come, but to serve, to be active, to pour out their lives and ministry, not simply among us, but among the community as well. Look, my task is to call you to ministry and then to equip you for the ministry for which God is preparing you. Because how much more incredible would it be that instead of looking at one or two ministers, we look at 400? Okay, maybe not today. That if every one of us woke up each day and said, what is my ministry, Lord? Where do you have me? Where am I being used by you? What doors are open? Look, today we prayed for our nation as we often do. What's going to change it? It needs changing. Let's all acknowledge that. What's going to change it? Honestly, it won't be politicians. Not for the good, at least. It won't be presidents. What do we need? We need the Lord to move. We need the Spirit of God to be poured out on this people. We need His Word, His truth, His glory to spread. How will that happen? Through the people of God, seeing the glory of God and recovering a biblical view of ministry. That all of your life is ministry. Brothers and sisters, God has gifted you for this. This is what He's done to go out into this city and be a light for Christ. 
And that as First Baptist shines the light here and Fairview shines the light here and our Methodists and our Presbyterian and our missionary Baptist brothers and sisters shine the light of Christ here, Columbus will see the glory of God and they will turn to him. And then the churches in Aberdeen and in Jackson and in Amory shine the light and then you start seeing those cities bow to Christ. And that's our prayer. Not that this state goes red and this city goes red, but that they go to Christ, the Lord. So we pray for churches here. We pray for churches in Alabama and Alaska, Arizona and Arkansas, that they would shine and that their states would bow to the Lord, that their leaders would teach them and would equip their people for the work of ministry. So we pray for our nation. And then we go. We go and we make disciples wherever we are. Look, the call on me is no different than the call on you in this way. You're not called to be supermen and superwomen. You're not called to walk on water or to heal people. Just go and be faithful. Trust God in your home. Treat your spouses with honor and with dignity. Lead your children. Work as unto the Lord. Don't be mastered by anything. Live under the reign and rule of Christ. Pray to him, trust in him, and go. Because that is the work of ministry, and God will use it. How do I know? Because he already is. He's already using it right here among us and through us into this city. So friends, where are you in it? Where are you? First, you must know the Lord, trusting in Christ to save you and bowing your life to him. If, if you've never done that, hear the call of Christ today. Come to him in faith and be saved. 